Uh, yeah, good morning to everybody in the building, and um, if you're on Zoom, good morning. So glad to be with you. My name is Dominic, and yeah, I have the privilege of uh, leading this community and following Jesus, and I have the honor of opening his word uh, this morning. Um, a couple months ago, our family bought a Nintendo Switch, and it wasn't, uh, it was a really hard decision, honestly. It was, it was challenging. I didn't grow up with games. I'm not a gamer at all. Uh, my wife did. Um, and our son was playing us, you know, a couple games at some friends' homes and stuff that he, he would go to. And he'd come back and talk about it and just the joy. And even like he'd get to play with some of the parents that were there as well. And, and I was just like, that's cool, whatever. But I just resisted for the longest time because, again, I, I'm not a gamer. And I just didn't see that as something. But I had to realize was that there was something in my son, like where he would just talk about it and he would light up. And so finally, I got to play with him at some friends' home. And I just saw like how fun and engaging it was for him. And in this home, they, they had good boundaries about it. And they only do it certain times and all this stuff. And so my wife and I were like, well, maybe we could do that too. Like if this is bringing him so much joy, like maybe we could enter into that joy with him. And again, for me, it was a struggle. It was a challenge, but we, we finally bit the bullet. We did it. We bought a Nintendo Switch and we got a couple of games. Then the World Cup happened and the boys and I loved watching the World Cup together. And then we got the FIFA 23 game on Switch. And now I'm like, I'm a gamer. I'm, I'm sold. I'm, no. But no, I, I enjoy playing that with him. It's really fun. And um, again, we've got some good boundaries around it, all this stuff. But recently we bought this game that was recommended to us by the initial family that has kids. And was like, oh, you can do it well. You can put boundaries around it. You can learn good stuff. You can spend quality time together. So we got this game and I think it's, it's called Overbaked. Um, and this, we got version two. Um, it was on sale. And so we got it 650 online, whatever. And so we got it for about a week. And last night we're playing and Christine hadn't played yet. The boys and I had played once. And so last night we're playing as a family for the first time. And if, you don't, if, you have, if you're not familiar with the game, the premise is like you're in this kitchen and you're working together to prepare these meals to get them out. And there's this menu across the top and you've got to collaborate. And what we heard was like, yeah, it's great. It's really actually fun for adults. Well, here's Christine and I trying to play with a four and a half year old and a seven and a half year old. And you're trying to coordinate this stuff. And it was just like crazy. And if I'm being totally honest, which I will be, I was getting like really mad. <clears throat> um, because like you, you, you've got you to coordinate and work together to get these dishes made and out the door to get your tips. And if you don't get your tips and you don't get enough, you don't get one, two or three stars, you don't get to move on to the next level. And so it's just like, it, it's very focused and very goal driven. And I've never played a game like this before, but something new came out of me. To the point, honestly, where I had to apologize to my son. He and I both literally had this moment. Here I am with a seven-year-old, me acting like a seven-year-old too, and just like clashing. My wife literally had to look over and go, you guys chill out. Like, it's a game. This is not a real kitchen. It's a game. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. It is. Yeah. But I was just totally struck by the fact that today I'm going to be talking about love and God's command for us as a church and as his followers to live in love. And I was honestly really convicted last night and going, I totally lost sight of why we got the Switch. I totally lost sight of why we wanted to engage in playing games together. I totally lost sight of the fact that this was about experiencing love and joy in something that my son, and I got totally caught up and sucked into like, get the menus out, get the menus right, don't mess it up, work together, collaborate, get the stars, move to the next level. And it totally distracted me. Like really easily, I was boom. I don't know if that makes any sense to y'all or not, but this morning for me, it was just a really good example, really simple from tangible life, just like how what we're going to be talking about today is so true and so easy. What we're going to be looking at today as we kick off our first uh, letter, as we look uh, in this series called This Is My Body, we're looking at the seven letters that uh, Jesus revealed his heart to John to write to seven churches um, 
this morning we're, we're opening up and we're going to be starting looking at the, the letter that, that was written to the church in Ephesus. And so I want to jump in. I want you to open it up with me. Um, and we're going to be talking again about, about love and, and the, the call to it as a church, the call to it as individuals, the importance of it and the reality of how easy it is to lose sight of the goal and of what we're called to and to allow love to kind of just go by the wayside because we get so stuck in something else. Uh, if you have your Bible, I'll invite you to open up and we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter two, verses one through seven. And begin the, the premise of, of, of this series, as we're calling it, this is my body. We're going to be looking at these letters where Jesus writes and he gives a real honest assessment in each one of, of each church. He gives a, a stern warning addressing a heart issue, but then he also gives a hopeful promise. And he calls the churches to remember who they are in light of who he is as the risen and living king and Lord that's coming again. Uh, and although these letters are not addressed to us, they are written for us and for our benefit. So I'm excited to just see what we learn from these uh, over the next seven, eight weeks as we journey together through these books uh, through the season of Lent. And so, yeah, Revelation chapter two, uh, verses one through seven, it, it reads like this. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tasted, excuse me, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And before we jump in and, and kind of dissect this and work through it, I want to give you a little bit of a, a background, um, if you will. I think it'll be helpful. A few weeks ago, when I was kind of setting the bridge talk from our, our first series to start the year to talk about this series, uh, we opened up and we looked a little bit at the prologue, and we looked at um, how this is a revelation that says revelation of Jesus Christ. And the way I'm interpreting that and understanding that is that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning it's a revelation by Jesus Christ, and it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, of who he is, and it's a revelation of who he is for the body of Christ. Meaning that the focus of Revelation, and in particular what we're going to be looking at, it's all about Jesus. Now, I know there's a lot of different theories, a lot of different understandings and misunderstandings about Revelation and what it means. When, I, when you hear the word apocalypse, what do you guys think of? Just shout some things out. Zombies, yeah. There's a game we have not gotten into and we're not going there. What else? <clears throat> apocalypse. Talk to me. Okay, X-Men. What else? Destruction, war, what else? Earthquakes, all, all kinds of things, right? Even stuff where sometimes what's going on in the world right now, people are going, oh, is this like, is this that, you know? Did you guys ever see about those meteors in Texas and different places over the weekend? No? Okay, that was crazy. Anyways, but the word apocalypse literally just, it, it comes from the Greek and it's apocalypsis. The word revelation is, and all it means is unveiling. And in the, the picture or the image literally is just, it's, it's taking the lid off of a box to unveil or to reveal something that was formerly unseen. And so as we're talking about revelation or we're talking about apocalypsis, we're talking about apocalypse, 
what this is, again, it's a revelation of who Jesus Christ is. That's mainly what the book of Revelation is all about. It's about who Jesus Christ is, about what he calls, calling his church to be, and therefore who his church is to be, and about the unseen realities and things that the church is having to struggle and battle through. And the way that plays out for us in the book of Revelation is that you do, you get all these metaphors, you get all these uh, things, symbolism, this imagery that can be confusing. But at the heart of it, this is a revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And it's a revelation by him himself for the sake of the church, again, which is his body. And so what we're going to see here in this first letter, even in the opening in verse one of chapter two, where it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's kind of, that's Jesus introducing himself in a certain way. And he's saying something really important about himself. But to understand that, we've got to look a couple of verses ahead of that. So I want to I read for you uh, Revelation 1, uh, verses 13 uh, through 16. And it reads this way. It says, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like one of the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. See, this revelation was given to John by the Holy Spirit, by Jesus himself. John is writing this, and it's the, it's the same John who wrote the gospel. It's the same John who wrote the, the three epistles. This is John, who was an apostle of Jesus, who knew Jesus very well, very personally. And he's, he's, we're told that he's stranded on this island of Patmos. He's there. This is around like mid-90s AD. And he's there on the island because he was proclaiming who Jesus was. And so he got exiled to this island. And while he's there, he thinks he's all by himself. And yet, God comes and appears to him, and, and it's Christ. There's this one that looks like the image of a son of man. That's a picture and a, and a word phrase that actually from the gospel, from the, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament and used in other places. And it's a way of saying that, that John was, was seeing an altered reality of a, a person, a man, one that looked like the son of man, standing there in the midst of this vision. And everything was, again, centered around this person. And he could recognize who this person was. It was the son of man. It was, it was Jesus. But he didn't just only have the full stature and function and look of, of, of Jesus that he knew. There was something else about him, and he described him in these ways. And I want to put up this slide for you that kind of uh, distills what he saw. Again, he saw one that looked like a son of man who had a long robe with a golden sash. And this represents that this is Jesus fulfilling his priestly role. He saw one whose hair was white like snow, which represents that he was there standing before him in perfect purity. There was, he, he had eyes that were like fire. And again, he was, it was this display of, of purifying power, that who he was wasn't just a son of man. There was a deity and there was a godness about him, one who was fully God and fully man standing in front of him. He had feet of bronze, which would represent the, the bronze of, of, of uh, armor and all of those things. But his feet were cast in bronze and represents everlasting power and authority. His hands held the seven stars, meaning he controls everything. All the stars, all the galaxies, everything are being held by this one who appeared to John. And there was this sword that was coming out of his mouth. If you're familiar, familiar with the book of Hebrews, right? In Hebrews, we're told that the word of God is like a two-edged sword, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces to joint and marrow. It helps us to discern and understand truth. And it said that his face was like the sun, meaning this one that was standing there that looked like a son of man. 
he also looked like the sun. He was as bright as the sun, meaning he, he is light and he's the source of all truth and all goodness. But this revelation starts with this picture of Jesus, both fully God and fully man. And he's here talking to John and saying, this is what I want you to speak to my church, which is my body. And so to the church in Ephesus, we see that, that it's this. It's the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, meaning he's the one who walks among the churches. And as we just jump in and start off this, this series, I want you to think about that for a second. This is Jesus, the living Lord, standing and walking among the seven churches. Now, my understanding of this is that this is written, again, to these seven churches specifically, but it's written to these seven churches as a representation of a revelation of Jesus, about Jesus, again, for actually all the churches, meaning for you and I today as well. And this is the living Christ, the resurrected Christ, saying, John, as I come to you, I'm going to share and I'm going to speak something to you for these churches. And as I write this, these aren't like secondhand accounts that I'm writing, meaning somebody didn't tell me what's going on in these churches. And now I'm coming to you and saying, this is what I heard. And so now I'm writing. We, this is Jesus saying, I am the resurrected Lord. And I'm about to give you information that I want you to share with the churches because I myself am walking among the churches. Do you guys get that picture? Imagine this morning, and maybe we don't need to imagine it, but maybe it's, a, again, an altered reality that we just don't always see, but that Jesus is walking among us this morning, Missio. Right? If, if we are his body, if we are his church, if he is the risen and resurrected one, the living one, the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega, the first and the last, as he describes himself in this book. That Jesus is here walking among us. And this is how Jesus starts this letter. John, I've been walking among the churches. And here's what I want you to share with the churches. Here's in particular what I want you to share with Ephesus. And he goes on to say this. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know your enduring patience, and I know you're bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Then down in verse 6, and you have this, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Jesus starts this letter by talking about who he is and this revelation of who he is, and then he goes down to talk about what's going on in the church at Ephesus. And if, and if you read this, you're going, dude, they're doing pretty good, right? And he starts, this is all commendation here. I mean, he tells them, look, like, I know your works. You're, I know that you toil. I know you have patient endurance. He says that twice. I know you cannot bear with evil. I know that you've tested falsehood and, and you've, you've, you've sought it out and you're discounting it. You're bearing up for my namesake. You've not grown weary, so you're enduring again. And also you hate the, the work of these Nicolaitans, which were a heretical group in the, in the back in that first century time. And they were trying to seduce the church into sexual immorality and idolatry. They were basically taking the phrase and the teaching of freedom in Christ. And they were basically saying, oh, that means we, we can do whatever we want. We have freedom to do whatever. It's called antinomian freedom. And, and they were like trying to get the church again to go this way. And the church in Ephesus was going, no, 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 no. That, that, that's, not, that's not true. That's not right. It's amazing because Paul actually, as he was um, leaving Ephesus, if we were to go back and read into Acts chapter 20, we'll do that just for a second. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28 and 30, this is Paul before the Ephesian elders, before he leaves. And he says this, he goes, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers 
to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, from your own selves, will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. It's encouraging actually to read that, right, in Acts, that Paul had given this warning. And then now to read this in Revelation and realize and go, whoa, they actually did it. Paul had warned them, people are going to come in and try and do some false teaching. And here in Revelation, John is writing, or Jesus reveals to John, that they actually did it. They, they, they were able to seek out and discern what's true, what's not. And they were bearing up in the truth. It's amazing. It's awesome. But the problem is, Jesus doesn't end there. He doesn't just see the good works and the things that he commended them for. He goes on into verse 4 and he says this. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. See, one of the things that's powerful about these letters of, to the seven churches that Jesus reveals is that he acknowledges the embattlement that the church goes through. He acknowledges that though he is the risen and conquering Lord, his church is still in process of having to work out and live out and understand what it means to live in light of his truth, his gospel, even his victory in this fallen and broken world. That's true for the church in the first century. That's true for us today. And that's one of the encouragements that we can draw from this. But Jesus looks at this church in Ephesus and he says, I have this one thing against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. See, the church in Ephesus was, was doing a lot of good stuff, but they had forsaken and forgotten the first and the primary thing. See, the love, the word that's used here, it's, it's the word agape, right? And in, in your New Testament, whenever you see the word love, you got to understand there's four different words that the Greeks used for love. There was a word that talked about brotherly love and kindness. There was a word that talked about romantic love. There was a word that talked about emotional love. And then there's this word agape, which is pure devotional love. It's the pure devotional love of God, the love that God has towards us and that God invites us to reciprocate to him. That is to undergird everything that we do, even the way that we would live out the other forms of love. This love is supposed to be at the cure because it's the purest. It's the foundational. It's God's love for us. And Jesus reveals to them, look, you've been doing a lot of good things, but you've forgotten or forsaken this love that you had at first. See, now one of the things that I think is helpful to understand here is that when he says that, I appreciate this translation here in the ESV where it says, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Because some translations say, you've, you've, for, you've forsaken or forgotten your first love. And when we read it that way, when it's translated, you've forgotten your first love, it causes us to think about kind of like this. Well, let me ask you, when you hear first love, what do you think of? Kind of romantic, right? Like my first love from high school. Or when I first came to know Jesus, my first love for Jesus. But what he's, what he's saying is not, not, that, not that first moment, not that first sentiment. Again, this isn't an emotional love. Like thinking back, when I first came to Christ, man, I was on fire. I would do anything. He could tell me to go anywhere. It's not that. It's not what he's talking about. Because the reality is not all of us have that experience with Jesus, right? How many of you came to know Christ when you were like five, six, seven, you know, when you were a kid? Let me ask you, tell me about your first love for Jesus when you were seven, right? You'd probably not imagine. It was, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, if you, if you came to Christ older, you might have that experience of like, you just have a clear understanding that I was saved out of this and into this. And it was like, again, I just, the grace was so good. I would go do anything. But that would only speak to then part of the church. 
But what Jesus is talking about here is not first love in that sentimental way, but love that you first had, meaning first love as first love as first priority. Let that love is to be the first priority that everything that the church would do, that this love is to undergird everything that the church does. And what's ironic here again, friends, is this, that this love that they once had, they had now left it or sent it away. They had laid it aside. They had omitted it. They had neglected it. So even as they were doing these works of toil, even as they're doing these works of endurance, even as they're not bearing up evil, even as they're testing things and discerning what's true or not, what Jesus is saying is you're doing those things and those are good, but guess what? You're not doing them out of love. And so I need to call you on that. And what I'm calling you to is repentance. I'm calling you to remember everything that my church is to be about and to do should be undergirded in love. And the irony about this, you guys, is that the church in Ephesus actually was known for love. So what does this tell us? That we can actually start off on a good path and a good track. We can start off on this path of love. And over time, whether it's individual, but here talking about even a body, it's really easy for a body to get sidetracked and go sideways. Again, get caught up in getting out all these menus on time and getting the points and the stars to move on to the next level. But it means nothing if love is not the core, the foundation, the center, and all-encompassing of the things that we do. I want to read for you a couple of examples of the way Paul wrote to the Ephesians and just show you the, the focus of love there, because I think this is valuable and important. In Ephesians 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul was writing this about 40 years prior to the letter uh, of Revelation. Paul wrote then, he said, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all of my prayers. In verse 3, 17 and 19, Paul prays again, and Paul prays this in 17 and 19. He says, I'm praying so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I want to read for you in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 1 and 2, where Paul writes, and this is kind of the crux and the center of this letter to the Ephesians. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. And I want to read for you the closing phrase of the book of Ephesians. In chapter 6, verse 24, Paul wrote this. He said, grace be with all who love our Lord Christ with a love incorruptible. Or in another translation, he says here, uh, in grace, excuse me, yeah, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. See, the church in Ephesus 40 years ago was known for its love. And actually, Paul, when he's writing his letter to them, he's writing and he's praying and he's talking about them being grounded and rooted in, the, in these thing, in the things of love. But he was writing to them ultimately in the book of Ephesians saying, you actually have this love, so I'm praying that you would grow continually in it. But what you don't have is truth. In the book of Ephesians, Paul is continually calling them back to understand and be grounded in the truth. And he's praying that they would have the love to discern what is truth. So in the epistle to the Ephesians written by Paul, the Ephesian church has love and they don't have truth. And now here in Revelation 35, 40 years later, the church has truth 
but what they don't have is love. You see the picture and the problem? See, as God's people, we're actually called to have what? We're called to have both. We're called to be a people of, of gospel truth and of gospel love. And to be balanced in those. To have depth in both of those. To have understanding and wisdom in both of those. To do good works out of the overflow of both of those. To be living out the realities and embodying both of those. Truth and love. And what John writes here, because Christ reveals it to him, is that the church in Ephesus, they used to have one and the pendulum swung to the other. And Jesus is calling them back to say, no, no, no. I'm calling you back to a place where you have both. I appreciate um, what Rich Velotis said in his recent new book uh, called Good, Beautiful, and Kind. He says this, he said, if love is the greatest good, then sin must be the antithesis of it. Sin is not just a violation of a moral law. It's the disruption of love. I want us to think about that for a second. If love is the greatest good, sin must be the antithesis of it. Sin is not just a violation of a moral law. It's the disruption of love. And here's why I think this is applicable, and I'm going to bring this up today. See, again, in, in this letter that Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus, they're doing a lot of good things. You could potentially read that list of stuff that they're doing and you could go, they're not violating any moral law, so they're not sinning. So why is Jesus calling them to repent, right? We should only have to repent from something in a place where we're sinning. And what Rich is trying to help us understand in, in, in this book, and actually because Jesus helped try to help us understand when he talked about what's the greatest commandment, is that sin is not just a violation of moral law and moral code. If we define sin as that, we've got far too small of a definition of what sin is. And we're going to get far too proud about how good we're doing because we're not sinning or we're not breaking a moral code. No, what, what he's saying here and what scripture actually says, what Jesus says, again, when he says that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord of God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus is saying love is everything in terms of living out the way of God. And what Jesus is saying here is going, again, you're doing some really good things, church. But if you're not doing it out of love and grounded in love and founded in love and undergirded by the way of love and embodying my way of love, you can do all the truth and enduring and toil and works. You can volunteer. You can do all these things you want. But if it's not coming out of love, you're actually in a place of sin. Why? Because sin is not just a violation of moral law and moral code. The sin is a violation of, of love. It's a disruption of love, which is the pure way and heart of God. You guys tracking with me? And Jesus is really clear about that. Why? Because love isn't on Jesus' optional list. It's fundamental and foundational to who we are, why we exist, and how we are to function as the church in the world. A few weeks ago, I defined and we said that, that, that the church exists to be the embodiment of God's love in the world, the embodiment of God's presence in the world. And first and foremost, it is to be a presence of love that speaks the truth in love, that does good works out of love. Jesus is saying, come back to this place where you remember love as the first priority in all that you do. It makes me think of the fruit of the Spirit when Paul writes about them in Galatians 5. Uh, Paul writes there and he says, what the fruit of the Spirit is what? Say it with me. The fruit of the Spirit is 
love, and then joy, and then peace, and then patience, then kindness, then goodness, then gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. But he starts with saying that it's love. In some ways, I think what Paul is saying is that the first work that the Spirit is always going to do in our lives is a work of love. And out of that work of love that the Spirit does in our life, then we'll be able to do the other things. Then we'll be able to be gentle and kind and all of those things. And Jesus is saying similarly here, come back to understanding this place, that the work that the Spirit wants to do in you first is a work of love before you move into these other things. Here's the, here's the question I think that's important for us to think about as we read this. By what characteristic is Missio known in our community? What do you guys think? If you were to answer that question, by what characteristic is Missio, are we known within our, within our community, within our city? I don't know. I'm curious, actually, I, else. I think I want to just go like, start asking some people, like, hey, have you ever heard of this place? What are they known for? I'd be curious to see what they would say, right? Because in some regards, that's what Jesus is doing here for this church in Ephesus. He's saying, okay, if I went out and I surveyed people in Ephesus and in your city and in your town, they probably would tell me, yep, you're working hard, you're doing good things, you're doing all this stuff. But what I've not heard from the survey is that you're, you're, none of it's out of love. You're out there talking truth, which is great. You're out there serving, doing this stuff, which is great. But the, people, aren't, people are saying there's no love. Like you're, you're not embodying the way of love. And so Jesus is calling them back to remember love as the first priority in all that they do. Here's a couple of things that I, I begin to think about for myself as the one who's called to lead our community to embody love. And I just begin to think about this and go, man, if, if I'm serving, am I, like when I serve in the community, am I serving out of love or am I serving out of duty, guilt, and obligation? And what's going to be the fruit of that? As I serve those who have needs, am I serving out of a savior mentality? Or am I serving out of the way it makes me feel good or makes me appear good? Or am I serving out of love? When I engage in scripture, am I engaging in scripture out of love? Or am I engaging in scripture for a desire just, just for knowledge? Just purely for, 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 for my head, for truth, to say I, I know some stuff. When I think and talk about and call us to scriptural soundness, am I doing that out of love? Or am I doing that out of self-righteousness? To say that I've got this soundness and we know some things here. What's going to be the fruit of that? When we're seeking to practice justice, are we doing that out of love? Or are we doing that out of an invitation or a demand from our political leanings or out of popular mentality? When I'm thinking about and working, trying to create systems of efficiency and order, Am I doing that out of love because it would serve people? Or am I doing that out of control because it helps me manage stuff? Here's the reality that I've been, when I was thinking through all of this, you guys, love is inefficient and love is messy. But love is not optional for us. In everything that we do, love is not optional. Love is to be foundational pure, unadulterated love that is the way that God loves us and the way that we are invited to reciprocate that love for him and, and the love that is to undergird everything else that we do. It's not optional. It's, it's core and central to who we are. And when we move from that, when we shift from that and anything else that we do, Jesus looks and goes, you're doing some really great stuff. And I'm proud of you in this. And I applaud you in this. And I want to encourage you in this. But right here, I need you to come back. I need you to repent. I need you to turn. I need you to have a shift in your thinking and come back to pure love. 
a couple of things I was thinking about too in terms of love. First uh, Corinthians 13, you guys familiar with it? What's First Corinthians 13? The love chapter, right? Do you guys know where Paul actually wrote that letter? Paul actually wrote the letter to the Corinthians when he was in where? When he was in Ephesians. He's in Ephesus. So Paul's in Ephesus and he's reminding them and he's applying them for their love. He's reminding them that they need truth. And as he's in that place, he's actually writing to the church in Corinth and he's writing about what true love is. And love there, I want to I read, read this together really quickly. Um, the, way, the way that Paul defines it as he's inspired by the Lord to, to define it. And he writes this. This is the way of love, 1 Corinthians 13, starting one. He says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but not have love, I gain nothing. Why? Because love is patient and it's kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not intolerable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hope all things. It endures all things. And he was down in verse 13 to say this. And so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. First Corinthians 13 has absolutely nothing to do with wedding love, with romantic love. It has everything to do again with agape love, pure love, the love of God, which is to undergird everything and all of what we do as individual followers of Jesus and as a church. I was thinking this, if, if this is the definition of love from scripture, of that pure agape love, that it's patient and it's kind, what would it look like for us to be a patient, a more patient church? What would it look like for us to be a more kind church? Kindness being the good manifestation in such a way that people are being served in a meaningful way that enhances their well-being. Just thinking, asking a question, like, are we a proud church or are we a humble church, right? To be a humble church that's dependent on God in all that we do. That we're not boastful, we're not envious, we're not prideful about these people got this or that and this and that, but, but just content with who we are, what God has given to us stewarding it well, and being dependent upon the Lord for everything that we do. What would it look like for us to be a, a church that, that is hope-filled and that, that's persevering and to believe that love never fails, that brings genuine hope to people? And when everybody else has given up and, and lost hope and thought, oh, it's too hard, that we say, no, 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 love perseveres. And love perseveres in holding out hope for people, starting with one another but also within a community. I know as I, I read this and as we read this together, there might be the inclination that we begin to feel like some sort of condemnation. Some sort in some way where we go, oh, he's telling us not leaving us. No, I'm not trying to do that. Not that's not it. Again, I, I, I encourage us, I commended us a few weeks ago on different things and don't necessarily have time to do that this morning. But I think the, 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 the heart here would be to say this, that we can either kind of mope in some condemnation or we can turn to Jesus. You know what I mean? Return to Jesus in the place where pure, devoted love is found and allow him to love on us and encourage us in this call to love and allow love to undergird everything. 
Because what Jesus ends with here, after he calls them to repentance, he calls them to remember, and he says this. He says in verse 7, he says, He who has an ear, he or she, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. See, if you remember the tree of life, the tree of life was was in the garden in, in Eden, right? And when God created it, and in the center of the garden was two trees. It was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God had commanded Adam and Eve to do what? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from the tree of life. You can be around it. You can hang out. You can be here. But what did they do? They didn't break necessarily a moral code or law of God. What they did was they disrupted the flow of God's love, and they went and they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we, we find out at the end of Genesis 3 that then what God did was he had to kick them out of the garden and humanity was pushed away from having access to the tree of life. And Jesus says here, to those who hear this, to those who repent, who turn and have a change of their thinking and move back and remember the place of love as first priority in everything and all that we do as followers of Jesus and as a body of Christ together. He says, for those that do that, what you're doing is you, you will be given, your reward is that you will be given access again to the tree of life. You will be with me in paradise. See, paradise in scripture is not necessarily defined as a physical place. Paradise in scripture is defined as nearness to God. Paradise is described also as a person, not a place. It's described as Jesus himself. That what Jesus is saying here is if, if you return and come back to this place of love, come back to nearness with me, come back to me as central to everything you do and my kingdom central to everything you do, what you will do is you'll find yourself living in the reality of paradise. On one hand, I think he's talking about the future reality of that, but I think he's also talking about here now in this season, wherever you are. Because love is the currency of the kingdom. Love is the key that opens the door to paradise. Why? Because love is Christ himself. And so church, if we are to be a church that extends love to others, if we are to be a church that holds love as first priority, I think the thing I feel called to remind us this morning is this. How are you allowing yourself to sit in, to soak in, and to receive the love of God? And even being in the season of Lent, what are the practices? What are the things that as you think about Lent, as you think about the season where you go, yeah, something in this resonates with me, that I'm doing these various things, but if I'm honest, it's not coming from a place of love. It's coming from these other places, but I want to serve out of love. I want to give out of love. I want to speak out of love. I want to teach out of love. I want to lead out of love. I want to, I want to do these things. I don't have within me the capacity and the ability to do anything out of love unless I am first receiving that love from the Lord. Does that resonate with anybody? So I think what Jesus is calling the church back to here is to say, yeah, again, come, come be with me. Come be near to me and allow my love to speak to you. Allow my love to engage your heart. Allow your heart to receive my love. Allow yourself to soak in and to sit in. Come back to being with me and engaging and experiencing my love as first priority so that as you go out into the world, then you're serving and doing things out of love as first priority.